On this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, we're recapping the functional medicine year in review. IFM's Director of Medical Education, Dr. Dan Lukaser, and the Director of Medical Education Initiatives, Dr. Robert Luby, will lead today's discussion on the most prominent topics and takeaways in the 2021 research. There's also uh, now, again, noise in the data that long COVID is often involving mast cell activation. So I think it's important that we get on this and get on it quickly because we are gonna be seeing a lot of patients with long COVID manifestations. I think this is an important contributor just as our previous uh, historical accelerables were. Inflammation is an important contributor in recovering from long COVID. The microbiota, the leaky gut, well, so too mast cell activation. So let's take this on as a community challenge We're up to it. We are systems thinkers. There's going to be antecedents, triggers, and mediators. I say, let's do it. Let's lead the charge and lead, you know, be the vanguard of addressing mast cell activation syndrome. They'll discuss new opportunities for functional medicine care and highlight the clinical advances, including the latest updates on COVID-19 that practitioners should consider as we head into the new year. Welcome, Drs. Lukaser and Luby. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Waddles. We have so much to talk about today, but I want to start with maybe the hottest topic of the year, again, was COVID-19. We had the rollout of vaccines and boosters, the rise of new variants, and of course, we kept our eye on the impacts of long COVID. For us in our functional medicine community, a big theme was immune resilience with our annual conference this year, even focusing on cultivating resiliency in both our health and our immune system. So Dr. Luby, I'll get started with you as the leader of IFM's COVID course. What are the important themes that we should be thinking about in terms of COVID-19 and our immune resilience as we head into the new year? Thanks, Claire. When we developed that COVID course, we had a pretty clear idea of the conditions, the medical diagnoses that gave an individual increased vulnerability to severe infection and poor outcomes. And it was quite evident based on those being mainly chronic diseases, lifestyle-driven diseases, that taking action on lifestyle, making improvements in lifestyle could certainly be protective from COVID. And now as this is starting to go uh, into its uh, really almost the third year now, uh, it's that is still the case that um, making lifestyle changes, addressing those uh, comorbid conditions or those vulnerable conditions can still make a difference. I think what's interesting is over these two years now, some data has accumulated regarding the health of the microbiome. There seems to be signals in the data that if you do have a more diverse, optimal microbiome, you are also more protected from poor outcomes of COVID. And uh, we also know now that COVID itself, if you were to get the infection, can alter the microbiome. And uh, since we know that all five lifestyle factors can improve the microbiota, uh, it's probably the case that not only is attention to lifestyle factors important for protection against COVID, it's also probably crucial for recovery and restoration after you've gotten COVID. So I think those are some of the main takeaways. And as we haven't had a a vaccine that's given the the results that we hoped for, early ambulatory treatment options that have really made a huge impact, in the absence of those, we are still emphasizing the importance of the lifestyle factor. So that's how I think we bring the functional medicine model into this, Kalia. I think that's brilliantly said. And that's one thing that I've really 
valued about the functional medicine model as we've learned about all of these risk factors for vulnerability and severity of disease. These are things that we're already thinking about with the functional medicine model. We're already addressing all those modifiable lifestyle factors. And I want to just dive into this gut health topic a little bit. Kalia, if I could just say something. One thing I would have liked to have said is one of our functional medicine principles with the microbiota is weed, feed, and seed. And with Dr. Lukaser's expertise in gardening, I think he's going to really take this to new levels. I did want to uh, add to what uh, Robert said uh, and, you know, what I'm doing clinically and certainly uh, along the lines of uh, Robert mentioned, uh, you know, there's there's now some pretty good research that suggests that uh, you know the gut microbiome does uh, alter in patients with COVID-19, and so there's a couple of things that I think we should be thinking about specifically. Um, we should be thinking about probiotics and prebiotics. I'm using uh, the uh, some of the. Uh, toolkit items that we have at, at IFM, I, I hand those out regularly. The, the other thing I would say about that is that, uh, and to some of that research, is that uh, looking at things that we've been looking at for the past dozen years, like uh, HSCRP, um, we, uh, we know from some of this research that uh, C-reactive protein uh, can be elevated by a disordered microbiome. So doing those same kinds of uh, laboratory analysis uh, with a, an eye on, well, what can you do uh, around the microbiome? How can you assess easily? Um, and this is not a perfect test, obviously. HSCRP is not assessing the microbiome specifically, but we do know that a healthy microbiome is uh, less inflammatory. We do know, of course, that uh, we, when we put ourselves more uh, in an inflammatory uh, situation, uh, that um, we are more susceptible to not only COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, but some of the uh, sequelae around SARS-CoV-2. Uh, if one does, uh, you know, catch that infection. So I think really focusing on uh, inflammation and what we can do around gut um, and, and microbiome improvements to decrease inflammation is the takeaway for me. Great. I'll follow up on that because a study came out earlier this year that showed this immunological coordination between the gut and the lungs that facilitated um, SARS-CoV-2 to infect the GI tract. And I'm certainly seeing more significant GI symptoms in patients following COVID-19 infection. Dan, is that something that you're seeing as well? Yeah, uh, I am seeing that. I can't say that I'm seeing a great number of you know, uh, COVID patients, but in those that I do see, I, I am seeing some of that. And, and I would uh, like to just add again, a little bit to what Robert was talking about. And uh, when, you know, when we're talking about, obviously, these um, vaccines and boosters and, you know, various pharmacological treatments, um, uh, you know, they are not, unfortunately, and I think we'd all like them to be the panacea, but we see breakthrough infections. Um, and, uh, and so 
doing this kind of immune resilience along with those kinds of uh, treatments, I think is incredibly important. And uh, you know, just stepping uh, back into overall immune resilience, we want to be looking at some of the other things that uh, we've been talking about for almost two years around immune resilience and have on our website around uh, certain vitamin and minerals. You know, talking about vitamin D and talking about selenium and and uh, talking about uh, uh, folate and talking about zinc and either measuring those or um, uh, uh, making sure that uh, an individual is getting that in their diet and or supplementation, I think are really important things to do in that overall immune resilience. Yes, perfect anchoring back into our functional medicine model. So as we're talking about our modifiable lifestyle factors, this is a perfect time to switch gears and look at the topic of biological aging and lifestyle. We've seen good evidence of biological aging as a measure of health and wellness. And I would say that even includes topics like immune senescence and how our, our, our immune system is functioning into our older age. And we know that lifestyle modifications can really alter that trajectory. Uh, our friend and colleague, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald has really studied um, aging and has demonstrated that our lifestyle has the potential to reverse our biological aging. So I'd love to talk to you both about how you're thinking about biological aging, how you're talking to folks about this, and what strategies we can implement in the new year to slow our rate of biological aging. So Dan, I'll go ahead and pass this over to you if you want to tell us your thoughts on this new and really exciting topic. Well, I think you know, what we talked about in, in our uh, just past uh, annual conferences. Uh, an important uh, part of where you're going, Clea, uh, and that is uh, Kara Fitzgerald's study on aging and uh, what she called the, you know, her her methylation diet, I believe, and and that was published really showed uh, improvements with a, a very um, focused but uh, broad uh, dietary program that uh, highlighted. Uh, you know, various ways to improve or balance methylation. And so I think that is uh, an important reminder <clears throat> of what we can do to, and what she showed was um, to actually um, slow biological aging in a, in a double, uh, well, in, a, uh, uh, in a, the treatment arm versus the standard arm. And I think that uh, while I think we need to continue to do this kind of research um, to prove the point. I think it's certainly along the same lines of what we have been talking about uh, for quite a while in terms of and what she did in that study, which is, which is a, a very uh, nutrient-dense, uh, uh, lower carbohydrate uh, dietary intake with other lifestyle factors that improved uh, biological aging. And uh, it's not surprising. It's good to have that kind of research, but it's not surprising to me. And so it doesn't, while I refer to that when uh, occasionally when I talk to patients, it doesn't really change what I have been. Uh, um, and I think what we all have been uh, trying to do and that foundation, uh, those foundational, those five foundational factors on the 
base of the matrix. Absolutely. And Robert, I'll direct just a very similar question your way. We see that there's, there appears to be an increase in biological age following COVID-19 infection. How can we talk to people who may have gone through COVID-19 about using those lifestyle factors when they read these studies and might feel a little fearful that they've accelerated their aging process? Right. Yeah. For those who are aware of this biological aging concept, that will be very motivating. I think that they will uh, take this information to heart and understand that uh, having had the COVID infection uh, will biologically age you. And at this point, the modifiable lifestyle factors that we know so well in functional medicine are the most um, certain intervention we can use to reverse biological aging. What I think is important about the group that's maybe not so aware of the concept of biological aging, and this is probably the majority of our patients, the majority of the world at this point, as this is somewhat of a new concept, the opportunities that I see are just wonderful. For one thing, with regard to methylation and those other epigenetic uh, influences on biological aging, this puts epigenetics on the map and in the lexicon of patients and consumers. That's the potential I see in the coming future. So that we're talking about, you know, patients are talking about how do I change my gene expression? That's not something that is currently on the mind of most of our patients, but that could be one of the great results of this, um, this kind of research. The other thing is if we think back from a patient's perspective over the last few decades, you know, what kinds of metrics were patients clinging to? It was total cholesterol level. It's their weight. Maybe it's even their hemoglobin A1C. And we've, we've seen the problems with those not really being as predictive as we hoped for in terms of, of outcomes. And so focusing on those and whether your cholesterol is going up or down uh, was not as accurate a predictor of your future health as it, as it could be. So in terms of these biological aging metrics, the, me the measurements that we're going to have as a result of uh, the circadian clocks and, and such, these metrics can replace the historical metrics in the minds of patients. And if they are now keeping track of their aging metrics, I think it's going to be one, much more accurate in terms of preventing disease, much more accurate in terms of reducing or uh, reversing disease, <clears throat> and much more motivating for patients. You know, if you, if <laughs> cholesterol is not nearly as motivating as saying, geez, I'm uh, 42, but I have a biological age of 48, I better do something about it. You know, that's really compelling, much more compelling than any metric we have for patients at this point. So I'm really excited about what it's going to do to the mindset of the patients, their motivation, their adherence to treatment, their adherence to lifestyle, especially. And then if we switch to thinking about uh, healthcare costs in general, if we get a more effect effective metric like that in the minds of patients, think about the impact on uh, healthcare costs with more people getting engaged in lifestyle factors because they know what that'll do to their biological age. I just see great potential going forward for this biological age research. Yeah, you reminded me, I was listening to a, a speaker at a conference earlier this year talking about uh, 
genetics versus epigenetics. And you reminded me as you were speaking that this, this particular speaker said, you know, genetics is the part of our story that's written in pen, but epigenetics is the part that's written in pencil. And so we can do some editing there based on our lifestyle factors, nutrition being one of them, and how empowering to feel like this part is written in pencil. And if you need to do a little rewrite, you can. Well, for the new generations coming up, they, they might not know what pens and pencils are. So we might have to change that message. Indeed. Before we move on, I also just wanted to loop back to the inflammation piece, because, Dan, you were talking about inflammation earlier. And I think a theme that's really emerged for me is this concept of inflammaging, right? And how chronic inflammation that may be triggered by an infection and then lingers on can really accelerate our aging process. And in functional medicine, we're already inflammologists. So this seems like a real place for functional medicine to shine in terms of really addressing that defense and repair mechanism and addressing long uh, chronic inflammation. So Dan, is this a conversation that you're having with people that even aside from COVID, inflammation is a powerful driver of our aging process and something we want to be mindful about? Yep. I think that's a conversation I probably in one way or another uh, have with every patient uh, around inflammation, because as you said, Clea, it is so, um, it's such an overarching mediator of uh, disease and dysfunction. And so I think, and we have, and I know we'll, we'll be talking about uh, time-restricted eating and fasting, which is another tool in the toolkit around uh, decreasing inflammation. We have so many ways that we can talk to patients about uh, how stress uh, can cause inflammation, about how increased intestinal permeability can cause inflammation, how uh, our diets uh, can have a significant effect on uh, a pro-inflammatory effect on, uh, on inflammation, how our connections, how sleep. I mean, uh, we, we have a lot of ways to decrease inflammation, I think. And, and so I, I do talk with patients in various ways, uh, as I say, directly talking about inflammation or indirectly, I may just be talking about sleep or, or be talking about a, a particular uh, nutrient botanical and and I don't bring up inflammation, but it's always in the background, it seems. Well, this is the perfect time to move on and talk about time-restricted feeding or fasting. Uh, Dr. Walter Longo, his work on the fasting mimicking diet was hugely successful at our annual international conference earlier this year. And we know that fasting and ketogenic diets and nutritional ketosis, there's evidence that continues to accrue that these states can really help treat some chronic conditions. So this is really exciting. And I'd love to hear from both of you what you have your eye on in the next year in terms of the upcoming research. So Robert, I'll start with you on this one. What are you looking forward to learning about in 2022 in terms of our time-restricted eating? Well, to interweave this with the topics we've just talked about, uh, the the restricted feeding regimens have been shown to improve the biomarkers of longevity. So I think that's a real nice synergy there is uh, as patients get more aware of longevity, uh, biological aging, uh, the biomarkers there, especially those metrics that they could track, I think there will be, you know, even more enthusiasm for and adherence to 
any kind of, rest, of a restricted feeding regimen. It's been shown to improve cognitive functioning in the elderly. So these kinds of uh, feeding regimens are going to catch on for that reason. I think there's a lot more awareness of uh, cognitive decline and the interest of patients to prevent that and curtail it if, if they see it starting. And the other thing, you know, to go back to our microbiota is uh, time-restricted uh, feeding, other uh, restrictive feeding regimens change the gut microbiota in a positive way. So this is also not only relevant for COVID, but for all chronic diseases, really, you know, microbiota uh, is informing our inflammation, as Dan just mentioned. If we can improve the microbiota, we can improve inflammation, we can prevent or in improve chronic diseases and restricted feeding regimens are a great way to do that. I think we'll see again, if you haven't gotten COVID yet, it will lower your vulnerability to COVID. And if you have uh, had COVID infection, uh, time-restricted feeding could be the way to get your microbiota back to an optimal state that will help you recover and restore your health. The other thing I like about it, again, from a patient's perspective is, you know, think about what we used to be able to talk with our patients about in terms of what's going to help your nutrition. Uh, it was calorie counting. It was, you know, reducing this food, reducing that food, eliminating these foods. Now we've got a whole, uh, a whole different portfolio of, hey, you can choose just 14 hours a day of not eating or two days a week of uh, lower calorie intake or fasting mimicking diet. There's, there's more options for the patient that they can choose from, which could make this more sustainable for them because they have more options instead of just the, the tiresome, tedious calorie counting. They've got options that they can adhere to and sustain and that they have chosen. So that's what I'm really excited for with patients, the options and the control it gives them over how they want to prevent chronic diseases, promote their future health, restore their current health. Definitely an exciting place to explore in our patient population. And Dan, I know you've been you've been doing some fasting in a unique setting with your patients, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how you've been using some fasting strategies in the clinic. Well, I'm not sure how unique it is, really. I I am seeing patients um, uh, by telemedicine, and uh, so I talk to patients all the time, uh, almost every patient I see about some form of either uh, fasting, which I define as 24 hours or longer, or time-restricted eating, which I define as you know, just a, a longer time period that you are um, uh, uh, not eating between uh, when you go to bed generally and, and when you wake up. Um, and, and I think what you may be also alluding to uh, Kalia is, uh, I've been doing shared medical appointments um, and uh, been doing some fat specifically uh, fasting and, and uh, time-restricted eating classes. And, and I really think that, uh, well, I would say in the big picture, I think um, uh, doing uh, shared medical appointments and or uh, group classes online is just a wonderful uh, integration of functional medicine in, in a healthcare setting. I think it, it makes it, uh, while I like classes in and of themselves, I think doing them online makes them uh, so much easier uh, for patients and just so much more convenient. And 
And while I do think there are some things that are lost in uh, when you're not uh, sitting together as a group, uh, there, there is a lot to be gained from doing those uh, group medical appointments uh, online, it, just in terms of the convenience. So uh, I think uh, that's, that's definitely, as we all know, a wave of the future. And, I, and I'm hopeful that we can continue to accentuate that in, in the healthcare setting. I would just add uh, a little bit to what uh, Robert said about uh, fasting. And, uh, you know, I think fasting and time-restricted eating are also really important or useful because the, uh, an individual who starts that, uh, in other words, uh, well, they can start wherever they can start. So there is there's no one right way, but if you are doing that for a couple of months, you generally start to see some improvements either in how you're feeling in terms of lowering inflammation or weight loss. Uh, for, for many people, it helps with weight loss or improvement in, in glucose control. So you, uh, you see and feel changes. And I think not that uh, looking at um, some of these uh, biological aging, which are very important, but we often don't necessarily feel that. And I think it's feeling some of these changes in uh, these time-restricted eating protocols and these fasting protocols is, is so useful for patients. And, and as Robert suggested, at least with the, with the fasting re regimes, not necessarily the fasting mimicking diet, which uh, can you know, cost some money if you're, if you're going on uh, uh, one of the one of the programs like Prolon, um, but a, a going longer overnight fast or or doing longer kinds of fasts um, doesn't cost anything. So I think that's another really useful, as we all know, uh, useful additive program that you can uh, add to somebody's regime or protocol without increasing their costs. Fantastic. Well, I, I like that you mentioned that some of the improvements we'll notice, you know, maybe improved sleep or weight loss, but there's also some things that are happening when we're fasting that we don't necessarily see with our eyes. And I'm thinking about improvements to mitochondrial function, and I'm going to use that to loop us into our next topic, which is something that was fairly new to me, this field of osteoimmunology and research over the last year has really found that mitochondria play an important role in the health of many body systems, which we knew, but including the bones and of course the immune system. And then recent studies have also linked bone health to GI integrity, particularly the use of probiotics in postmenopausal women. And we've seen this topic heavily featured in industry headlines. And so I'd love to check in with both of you and see what you're keeping your eye on in terms of bone health, mitochondrial function, osteoimmunology. So Robert, I'll turn it your way. Anything that you're excited to learn more about in 2022 about bone health, the uh, connection between our GI system and our bones? Yeah, I think this is something on which we need to keep our fingers on the pulse. So uh, as you said, it's been shown some recently emerging evidence that probiotics will improve markers of bone health, also flavonoids. So dietary approaches and nutraceutical approaches 
And this is really important because, uh, you know, a lot of people would argue there are not satisfactory pharmaceutical options in terms of potential risk factors, uh, the, the frequency of side effects and the cost as well. So I think this is a real, uh, a real positive way to um, bring in some functional medicine principles. And, you know, if probiotics are helpful, one would think prebiotics may also be, and maybe the research just hasn't been done yet. So I think dietary approaches to improve osteoimmunology, as you said, mitochondrial health, and all those uh, markers of bone health are a, a real thing that we have to keep our eye on. And I think functional medicine model will have a, a central role to play in helping patients achieve it. Yeah, let me just let me just uh, <clears throat> cut in there, Kalia, and add that I think that probiotics may be helpful in other ways that uh, we didn't realize, as as Robert is saying, but. If we think back and uh, all of us or many of us who have been using some sort of stool analysis and, and looking at beta-glucuronidase and the recirculation of, of estrogen and with higher levels of beta-glucuronidase and now and, and knowing that probiotics can lower that, uh, can lower uh, beta-glucuronidase and so it has an effect likely on estrogen and therefore likely has an effect on, on bone reabsorption in that way as well. So it's um, uh, at some level learning um, uh, uh, old things in new ways, I think. And, you know, there was uh, there, as, as Robert has, has alluded to, there are now a number of studies that just came out in the past couple of years that uh, suggest that. So I think it's another avenue that Again, as Robert said, we need to keep our our eye on the eye on the uh, ball here. As we're talking about the connection between different body systems, we just talked about hormones and mitochondria and bone health. I want to dive into the the gut health piece a little bit because we saw some studies emerge over the last year showing that chronic conditions like IBS and long COVID symptoms, that there seems to be a connection between mast cell activation and all of these chronic conditions. And I'm always putting, um, looking for new information about mast cell activation, because it's something that my patients ask me about all the time. And so I'm really excited to see more papers come out over the last year. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you have found, what your clinical takeaways have been from this admittedly very complicated and intricate topic. So Robert, any clinical takeaways that we should know about or keep our eye on as we head into the new year? Right. I think this is really problematic to get your clinical mind around, but here's how I suggest that we look at it in our functional medicine community. Think about the historical parade of concepts that we accelerated into the mainstream, such as the role of inflammation in chronic disease, the role of the microbiome, the role of leaky gut. Now, there weren't at the start, there were not good laboratory measures of that. They, they were, uh, there were not reliable clinical patterns necessarily that you could rely on. The same is true of mast cell activation syndrome. So we should be comfortable in this uncertain space. It has nonspecific symptoms. There's currently no lab testing that can verify it. And yet 
the way we think about systems biology, we should be able to, we should be up to this challenge, Kalia, as functional medicine practitioners. And here's, here's the way I recommend that we look at it. We are going to be able to develop reliable antecedents of mast cell syndrome. There are some genetic, there's you know, some primary and secondary mast cell syndromes. But really, I think the more common thing is mast cells are part of the immune system. And like other uh, branches of the immune system, they get activated or dysregulatory with chronic diseases, with lifestyle changes. So I think what we also need to come to do is to define what triggers mast cell activation in different conditions? What are the mediators of mast cell activation that are you know, recurrent or ongoing in a patient that can be reversed with either lifestyle changes, dietary changes? So I think what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna find that even though this seems mysterious right now, we're gonna see some general familiar principles come out is that we just need to categorize this into what are the antecedents? What are the triggers? What are the mediators? We've been through this before with inflammation, the microbiota, leaky gut, and we can solve this mast cell syndrome clinically. Um, so I think, you know, dietary modulation looks like it's going to be an important thing. There's already some evidence uh, uh, supporting fiber, onions, turmeric, apples, peaches, uh, things like moringa, chamomile, Brazil nuts, nettle, watercress, galangal. So nutritional approaches will be helpful. I think we're going to be able to um, uh, discover and uncover and use more. Uh, there's also uh, now, again, noise in the data that long COVID is often involving mast cell activation. So I think it's important that we get on this and get on it quickly because we are going to be seeing a lot of patients with long COVID manifestations. I think this is an important contributor, just as our previous uh, historical accelerables were. Inflammation is an important contributor in recovering from long COVID. The microbiota, the leaky gut. Well, so too mast cell activation. So let's take this on as a community challenge. We're up to it. We are systems thinkers. There's going to be antecedents, triggers, and mediators. I say let's do it. Let's lead the charge and lead, you know, be the vanguard of addressing mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah, I would just add on to that uh, of what Robert has just articulated that we have been talking about mast cells for the past 20 years, this is um, what, what has become apparent, I think, over the past maybe uh, five years in the research that's been going on is that mast cells have a, a much larger place to play than just thinking about allergies or allergic reactions. And because now there's you know good research that uh, mast cells are involved in a variety of other illnesses or dysfunctions from IBS to uh, IBD to, uh, to migraines, et cetera. So it is, uh, as, again, as Robert said, it is um, trying to uh, bring what we have known for a while in terms of some of those foods and in terms of some of the kinds of uh, supplements that we that we have used for a while in terms of stabilizing mast cells and what uh, you know talking about quercetin and stinging nettles and and what we can do to better understand this syndrome now now it's called a syndrome mast cell activation syndrome what we can do to better understand it while we continue to 
uh, move forward in the ways that we have known that we are uh, moving forward. And we've probably been treating, I think, mast cell, although I think it's much more prevalent now uh, for a variety of reasons. I think we've all been treating mast cell dysfunction or mast cell activation for many years and maybe just didn't uh, know we were treating that specifically. Agree with everything Dan has said. And Leah, if I may, Leah, if I may one more facet of this uh, in order for the functional medicine community to get their mind around it. I think the mast cell activation syndrome may have um, a home, if you will, in the structural integrity node of the matrix. Uh, it, there's some good evidence that it disrupts barriers, you know, microscopic membranes and, and such. Uh, the gut, the gut uh, endothelium, uh, maybe the blood-brain barrier, other, other uh, microscopic structural components of the body. And we may also want to be thinking of this in terms of uh, the spectrum of auto-inflammation to autoimmunity. Perhaps mast cell activation is one of those components of the auto-inflammatory response, especially at that microstructural level. I think this is something we want to pay attention to, keep our eyes on the research, see if this does bear out, because it's certainly a, um, a principle we would know how to address in our systems thinking and our functional medicine clinical approach. One other thing I want to add is that Robert brought up Brazil nuts as seeming to have some effects on uh, mast cell stabilization. And that may be because of, and we all know there's a lot of selenium in Brazil nuts, and there's other research that suggests that selenium may have some mast cell stabilization and our old friend vitamin D, which seems to be good for everything, that also seems to, vitamin D seems to have some uh, regulatory or uh, usefulness in, in uh, decreasing mast cell activation. So there are particular vitamins, I think we can think about that help with stabilizing mast cells as well. It's interesting, Dan, how you just mentioned vitamin D and selenium, full fast therapeutics to help prevent mast cell activation or hyperactivation. And knowing that both of those interventions are also used to lower potentially thyroid antibodies. And going back to your point, Robert, about this potentially being an auto-inflammatory situation, it makes a lot of sense. We talked about different factors triggering a hyperactivation of our mast cells, nutrition, lifestyle factors. And so let's talk a little bit about a new topic, which is polyvagal theory, as we're thinking about our stress coping mechanisms and how that plays into our chronic health conditions. Dr. Stephen Porges spoke at our annual international conference earlier this year, and he really emphasized the importance of autonomic regulation in our health. Um, this continues to be highlighted by the pandemic. We know that the stimulation of our vagus nerve and our parasympathetic response can really help to offset chronic stressors. Robert, I'd love to hear from you. How are you talking to people about using their uh, vagus nerve stimulation, how can we incorporate this into clinical practice? What should we be looking out for? Yeah, I like to frame this in, the, in terms of, uh, you know, patients are very comfortable with physical fitness, aerobic fitness. And uh, this is a way of talking about vagal fitness or parasympathetic fitness. There, you know, vagal tone can be improved. Parasympathetic tone can be improved. 
with regard to, you know, it's, it's a mediator to get to our ATM model. It's a mediator in so many chronic diseases, especially diseases involving pain and inflammation because uh, poor sympathetic tone or dysregulated sympathetic tone uh, contribute to inflammation. Also with regard to COVID, you know, the uh, parasympathetic tone, the vagal tone is important um, in terms of a long-term sequela of past trauma, social determinants of health, ad adverse childhood experiences. Uh, it's in, certainly a contributor in uh, exacerbating mental health conditions or what we would call mental health conditions. So the way I like to think of it with patients now is in terms of fitness, this can be a fifth form of exercise. If you think of aerobic resistance exercise, flexibility and balance, well, vagal moments could be our fifth form of exercise. I think if we put it in those kinds of uh, terms for patients, they get it and they can include this in a daily regimen of fitness, vagal fitness. The other thing I think, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, closely related to stress reduction, but you can almost think of polyvagal syndrome and the, you know polyvagal toning as a sixth modifiable lifestyle factor. You know we want to pay attention to exercise, to sleep, to nutrition, to stress, to relationships. We could also take time out every day for vagal moments. There's very simple things you can do to improve vagal tone throughout the day, and that's how I think we can really bring this into clinical practice again in an accelerated way. That's going to be very meaningful and will hopefully um, motivate further research on the topic. Let me just add here, Clea, I think that was really well said in, in vagal moments. Um, and I think we can have, uh, uh, you know, we often think, or I certainly have in the past often thought about uh, mindfulness and mindfulness practice and mindfulness training and you know, spending 20 or 30 minutes uh, at the beginning of your day or at the end of your day um, uh, doing that or um, trying to uh, find the time. But as Robert just said, I think we can find mindfulness moments. It doesn't have to be the 20 or 30 minutes. You can, you know, one of the main ways that you can stimulate in this idea that, you know, the healthy function of the vagus nerve is through uh, deep, slow belly breathing, and that can you can just do that for a moment. And I think those kinds of things can also help um, integrate that into your daily lives. Well, vagal moments and mindfulness moments, so many good sound bites just provided there. As we're talking about uh, our stress coping mechanisms, I wanted to close out our episode talking about different care models. And Dan, you already talked about shared medical visits and what we've discovered over the last year and learning from our subject matter experts is that when we're in a shared medical visit model, that sometimes that can be a stress reliever for the patient. They build a sense of community. It allows them to share in a more open and engaging way. I would love to talk for just a few minutes about these really emerging forms of care, you know, using telemedicine, the collaborative care team, utilizing health coaches. Are there models of care that you're interested in moving into the next year? Will you be shifting your practice at all? Dan, I'll hand it over to you. Well, as I said, I'm, I am uh, trying to um, provide more shared medical appointments because not only 
for the reasons that I mentioned, uh, thought think it's a very good way to connect with patients and have them connect with uh, themselves. It, for me personally or professionally, I just find it uh, 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 very satisfying to have those kinds of uh, connections with uh, a number of people, 10 to 15 people and kind of going around the room and, and uh, um, sharing experiences and, and not just, if you will, lecturing or teaching, but having a shared experience. And, and in that process, uh, what I've also worked with or um, uh, tried to work with is, is not just the, uh, uh, the clinician, but working with a health coach or somebody who provides that health coaching and does that far better than I in terms of bringing uh, bringing the uh, participants out and, and getting what they are interested in uh, pursuing. And it it's, doesn't have to be if in this group that everybody is doing the same thing, as I, as I mentioned in, when I was talking about fasting, uh, there are many different ways to get up that mountain and you don't all have to be going at the, at the same speed as long as you are taking that first step. So um, working with a nutritionist and or a health coach, I think for me is, is one of the ways that I want to incorporate in the coming year. Great, Robert, any thoughts about our shifting care teams in the new year? Oh yes, I think this really, in terms of the practitioner, makes the practitioner rethink their model with all the various forms of providing remote care and virtual care. It really asks us to consider different options of uh, our clinical model. And I, this even goes back to training of medical students, residents, et cetera. You know, we, we wanna be training them to think beyond just the face-to-face -face patient visit and how can they make a bigger impact on health. What's so promising about it from a patient perspective though, and uh, the clinician perspective also is this provides for proactive care as opposed to reactive episodes of care. Usually you haven't seen the patient for a while, oh, the patient gets sick, they call you up, they make an appointment and then they, they get in and you're always reacting. With the kinds of monitoring we can do proactively in providing remote care, it can actually be the clinician or the care team that initiates the touch point because we see something in their data, you know, their trackable data that they're using and we can actually be proactive in their health. Now think of what this does for the patient-clinician relationship or the therapeutic partnership. Currently, we have to re uh, rely on patient recall, memory, and quite frankly, their candor in telling us what led to their most recent episode you know, for which they called us up. Uh, that's fraught with all kinds of problems. If we are proactively monitoring them, with uh, the wearables and, and the trackable devices and such. Think about, we, we're reaching out to communicate with them. Patients appreciate that, but it also allows us a much more intimate look into their circumstances, their lifestyle factors. We're gonna say, hey, we noticed this is going on right now. What's going on in your life? And we'll, you know, they'll have immediate recall. They'll be able to tell us, they'll be grateful for that. And I think this is re really has the potential to enhance the patient-doctor relationship, and not just the doctor, of course, this is other healthcare professionals who will be reaching out for these touch points. So I think it has a real, real uh, uh, ability to improve that relationship factor of care, in addition to bringing all kinds of other healthcare professionals 
into uh, primary roles in the healthcare team. And this alone can provide uh, you know, cost savings and more access to underserved, marginalized communities, et cetera. So I see great potential for this. I hope we can steward uh, this movement in those directions which, of which I've just spoken. Fantastic. You reminded me about just the emergence of remote monitoring during this telehealth era and how, you know, with even blood pressure or in my practice, I do cycle tracking and having that engagement between practitioner and patient, as you said, can really deepen that therapeutic partnership. So beautifully said. Well, as we wrap this episode, I wanted to thank you both for spending time with us today and not only letting us know about the most exciting topics of the year, but also sharing your clinical takeaways from a functional medicine perspective. It has been such a pleasure chatting with both of you, and we look forward to reconnecting with this community in 2022. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Happy New Year. Bye. To join the conversation on this topic, visit IFM's pages on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about functional medicine, visit ifm.org.